Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 33, and I want to invite you to stand as you're able as we read God's Word together. You can find this in your bulletin on page 5. Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. This is God's word. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, this is Jesus, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, this is the word of the Lord. Lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you We thank you that you have given us your whole word, even the hard parts, even the parts that challenge us, even the parts that shake us up a little bit, because you send these words to us for our good, for our joy, for our fullness. And so we pray that you would help us to receive these words, help us to to learn of you, Lord, help us to have humble hearts before you. And we pray that you would lead us this morning, that you would draw us closer to yourself, that you would help us to see through the fog at what is really true and real. We pray that you would bless us this morning. Help us, no matter where we're at on the spiritual spectrum, to dial in and to receive from this word. We ask for these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. If you watch any TV, you've seen many different kinds of commercials. And as I've been working out at my new gym, there are lots of TVs up, and I've been noticing that there are lots of commercials for different kinds of medications. And I've been analyzing these commercials, and, and I've recognized that these commercials have a common pattern. They begin with someone who's experiencing some kind of problem. And then they they start taking this medication. And all of a sudden, wonderful things begin to happen in their lives. All of a sudden, they got smiles on their faces. Their relationships are new. They're all of a sudden more adventurous. This medication has completely changed their lives. But at the very end of the commercial... The voiceover goes into double time 
as they speed through the possible side effects that may result from taking the medication. It, it goes something like this. Taking this medication may cause headaches, upset stomach, diarrhea, dizziness, flu-like symptoms, nausea, or death. <laughs> now, every time these commercials come on and it gets to the end, I find myself thinking, now why in the world would I want to take that medication? Why in the world would I do this? This seems crazy. But here's the reality. The makers of the medication are suggesting that the benefits of taking the medication outweigh the potential side effects. When Jesus calls disciples to himself, he spends a lot of time telling them about the wonderful things that he will do in their lives, who he will be for them, the, the beautiful and wonderful things that are involved in belonging to the kingdom of God. He gives them a picture of life in the kingdom, and it's got joy, and it's got hope, and it's got renewed relationships. He promises to completely change their lives for the good. But unlike these drug commercials, Jesus doesn't speed through the possible side effects of following him. In fact, he does just the opposite. He slows down, he looks you in the eyes, and he wants to make sure that you understand everything that is involved in following him. When you hear Jesus lay out the possible side effects, you may well think, why in the world would I want to do that? Why in the world would I want to follow him? Self-denial, cross, no thanks. But I want us to see this morning that what Jesus is suggesting all along when he teaches about the kingdom is that the benefits of discipleship, the benefits of following him far outweigh the potential side effects. The benefits of following Jesus and knowing him and belonging to him far outweigh any of the temporal negative consequences. So let's take a look at our text for this morning, and we're going to approach it through two points where we consider our greatest love and God's greatest love. Those are our two points. This is how we're approaching this passage. We're going to look at our greatest love and God's greatest love. So let's begin with verse 25. Verse 25 tells us that great crowds accompanied him, that him is Jesus. And this is right off of the, the, right off of the, the parable that Jesus tells about the banquet. Now, we covered that a few weeks ago, the party, that Jesus tells people that the kingdom of God is like a party. The kingdom of God is like a great banquet. I don't know what you have in your mind when you think about heaven or life with God, but Jesus says it's most like a party. Now, naturally, people could get excited about, about this vision. They, they, would, they would follow him in, in the droves. And it's after Jesus leaves that party that we enter up into our text, verse 25, and it tells us that great crowds accompanied him. They had heard about the good things. They had heard about the exciting pieces of the kingdom. But Jesus is now flashing the end of the commercial to them. And he lets them know 
that there is difficulty involved in following him. You can imagine how much notoriety and celebrity Jesus had garnered at this point in his ministry. He was healing people. He was was doing miracles. People were astounded at Jesus. He had a reputation that people knew about. They heard about Jesus. And so there were a lot of people who were following Jesus because they were mildly interested in in who he was. They weren't sold, but they they were interested. Some people thought themselves to be all the way invested. All the chips were in the center of the table. They were down. They were ride or die with Jesus. And so Jesus turns around. He's turning around to a mixed crowd of Jewish followers, and he's giving them this word. He wants them to really wrestle with whether or not they really want to follow him. And we get a sense of the kind of followers that Jesus is out to have. But we could say, when we look at this crowd, we could say that there's something similar in our current moment as it pertains to those who are associated around Jesus. There are lots of people who, through cultural familiarity or tradition or even renewed interest in spiritual things, find themselves in the local church, find themselves listening to sermons, trying to sort things out. And Jesus is offering this word of clarity to you as much as he was offering it to them in the first century. He wants you to know what it is that you're signing up for if you sign up to follow him. Many people aren't sure if they want to commit. And I know that there are strains within the Christian church that only know one mode. Hurry up, hurry up, do it, do it, accept them, accept them. Trust Jesus, become a Christian now, now. But right here, I think Jesus gives pause. He respects taking the time to really wrestle with it so that you have the real thing if you follow him. You can make the case that a lot of the turmoil that has fallen upon the, the church in America is the result of people who follow Jesus but haven't counted the cost of really following him. Really following Jesus when it comes to how we care for other image bearers. Really following Jesus when it comes to our relationship to power. Really following Jesus as it relates to our material possessions. And this is why Jesus offers up this word. And he's inviting you, no matter where you're at on the spectrum, ask the questions. Deal with the issues. Wrestle it down. Scrutinize the thing, but also know that it scrutinizes you. Jesus doesn't want to do a bait and switch. He doesn't just want to offer the benefits. He wants to invite you to consider the cost, the side effects of discipleship. He wants you to kick the tires a little bit, to reimagine what your life would look like if you were following him. But he initiates his teaching with a shocking pair of statements. Verse 26, look at this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now you can imagine how difficult this word was for the people of the day. 
how this confronted them. It, it, when, the way it confronted them was, was it much the way it confronts us today. This is a difficult choice, Jesus is saying. But, of course, these Jewish followers were familiar with rabbinic figures of speech. They knew Jesus wasn't telling them to literally hate their father and mother and their children and sisters and brothers and to hate their own life. They remembered his famous sermon on the mount where he called them to the life of love. They remembered the other teachings. They knew this was a rabbinic way of saying that your love for him must be so strong that your love for other things in comparison could be called hatred. That's how strong your love is for him. That's how strong your commitment is to him. That every other commitment looks like chump change. It looks like hatred. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying nothing short of this entire thing is about your love. It's about your loves. It's about your desires. It's about what you want most. And you must want me, love me, commit to me more than anything else, or you just can't be my disciple. This is what he's saying. And you know what? It shakes us all down. Every one of us. Who can stand before such a statement? I can't. It doesn't matter how many sermons I preach. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how many good deeds I do. It doesn't matter how many chapters of the Bible I read. It, it doesn't matter all of the various spiritual accolades I can put up on my resume. Jesus isn't after all of that. First, he's after your heart. Because if he gets your heart, he'll get that. But that's not first on Jesus' list. Maybe, maybe that's the way you've always thought of Christianity. Oh, it's just about doing the right thing, and every once in a while you'll show up, you know, come to church, or you'll show up, and you'll do a service event, or you'll do something nice for somebody, and you'll be pretty satisfied with yourself, pretty impressed, like, I'm a good guy. I'm a good person, you know? All of us catch ourselves having these moments. All of us catch ourselves being impressed with the things that we do and present to God. But here Jesus is saying that is not what discipleship is about. Discipleship is about an unmitigated love for Jesus, unqualified love and commitment to Jesus. He was calling for a love from them that was so strong, so real, so committed that everything else looked like hatred in comparison. Now, I want you to think about how much you love the people in that list. Think about how much love you have if you're married for your spouse. If you have children, think about how much love you have for your children. I mean, many of you, there's nothing you, I mean, you would throw your kids off a bridge. I mean, jump off a bridge for your kids. <laughs> Sorry, I slipped, Freudian slip. Freudian slip. My bad. You know, sometimes it just comes out, right? <laughs> You would jump off a bridge for your kids. You would do anything for them. Many of you would do anything for your sister or your brother. And Jesus is trying to tap in, and he's trying to say, do you see the kind of love that you should be setting on me? That strong love that you have should pale 
in comparison to the love that you have for me. He wants a love that outstrips, outshines, outburns, and outdoes our love for any other. Jesus continues in his teaching in verses 28 through 32 by telling them two parables to reinforce his point. The builder of a tower, he tells a parable about building a tower, and then he tells a parable about a king who is considering his options in a military conflict. And here's the point. Here's the point of these parables. It's clear. This is what Jesus is saying. Who would begin to build a tower without analyzing whether he or she had the resources to accomplish the task? No one. You would not start to remodel your house if you knew you didn't have the resources to see it through. Your house hanging all wide open, no wall, no roof. You're like, well, it started off good. I got nice fixtures, right? No, you sit down, you plan the budget out, and you say, can I make it through? Can I get this completed? Jesus is saying no one starts a building project without considering whether they can make it all the way through. What king would think of going out to defeat an attacking king without analyzing whether he had the resources to win the victory or if he needed to surrender terms of peace? No king would do that. Every king reckons with the decision before jumping out. And in the same way, it would be just as foolish to jump off to being a disciple without assessing the impact that it will have on your life. Discipleship changes allegiances with family. It requires a willingness to die to yourself, sometimes to die literally in certain parts of the country, in certain parts of the globe, excuse me. People must lay their lives on the line. They have to be the real deal. There's no cultural Christianity in the Middle East. It's going to cost them. And they have determined that it's worth the cost, that they are willing to experience the side effects of discipleship because the benefits outweigh the side effects. Believers in Asia, they face similar circumstances where it is, there is no cultural Christianity. You must be the real thing. Discipleship shifts the focus off of self-centeredness and places you at the disposal of someone else. It changes the way you handle financial resources. It touches every area of life. Jesus tells these people, and he, he continues to tell us this morning that the choice to follow him is no trivial matter. It's not a casual or ordinary thing. If you fall into the Christian faith and you think it's a casual, ordinary thing, you need to, you need to come back and let the words of Jesus sober you. You have fallen into a sort of stupor and you need to be awakened. These are the smelling salts. Jesus waves it under the noses of the people who are listening and he says, you need to realize what, what discipleship really is. If you're going to follow me, I don't want fans. You know what a fan is, right? Yeah, when, when things are going good, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, we're going to the Super Bowl. Yeah. Let's find out what happens 
when someone loses? Or what happens when that team has a bad season? Stinking Steelers. <laughs> Doggone. Man, this is whack. I can't believe it. Go Jacksonville, right? <laughs> you switch up because that's what fans do sometimes. They are hot or cold. Like, they may not bail on their team, but if their team is, is not really doing well, if your life circumstances aren't really doing what you thought they would do, you know, if, if the job isn't working out or, or, or if, if the kids are driving you crazy or, or, or if, if that spouse isn't coming, and you know, you know, sometimes it's easy to act like a fan. But Jesus doesn't want fans. He wants disciples. And disciples have this holistic outlook on what it means to know and follow Jesus. No aspect of life is untouched. It is a costly choice to follow Jesus. And I like how, how T.W. Manson put it. He says, salvation is free, but it's not cheap. And that's a good word to keep in mind. Anytime we try to cheapen the Christian faith by thinking we could sprinkle a little bit of good deeds in our week, and then look to God and think that that's cool without having the heart reality. Anytime we feel like we can nurse grudges and we can nurse anger and bitterness in our hearts, but we can't nurse humility and a love for Christ in our souls, beware. This is what Jesus is saying to you and to me, whether we like it or not, whether it strikes us well or it feels like a drag. This, this is what, this is the teaching of the real Jesus. Not the cultural version of Jesus who only talks about love and acceptance and doesn't judge anyone. I'm here to tell you, this statement is a winnowing statement. This is a separating the wheat from the chaff statement. This is a separating the sheep from the goats statement. This is a you're for me or you're against me statement. It is a totalizing statement. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral zone. There's no, what's the country that doesn't have any choices in the military conflict? Switzerland. This ain't Switzerland, y'all. Ain't no Switzerland in the kingdom. I want the Swiss to be in the kingdom but ain't no Switzerland, ain't no safe zone. You can't be on the fence with Jesus. You gotta paint or get off the ladder. That's what discipleship is. Jesus is throwing it down, black and white. You like more nuance, you don't like black and white, you're gonna have a hard, Jesus is gonna cut across your grain because he does a lot of black and white so that he can get you down to what is really real. But what are the costs? What are the costs? Let me run through some. I was just sitting thinking about my own life, and I was thinking about our community, and I was thinking about the scriptures. And this is what I came up with. What is involved in this self-denial, this cross-carrying that Jesus describes? What do you have to part with to follow Jesus? Listen carefully. You must part with your pride, power, and everything that makes you center yourself and elevate yourself. You must part with it. You got to say goodbye. You got to say goodbye like NSYNC. Bye, bye, bye. If it makes you center yourself or elevate yourself in pride, and, and if you find yourself grasping and clutching for power all the time, you must say goodbye. 
You must part with your opinions that are contrary to God's word. Bye. I like to think of it like Jesus. I don't care what you like to think of it like. Let me tell you the way you need to think about it if you want to have life. It's that black and white. I'm not, let me tell you something. I don't, I don't like bringing hard words a lot. You know, I'm a lover, not a fighter, okay? If you don't know me, I, I like to talk about love and grace all the time. This is a hard word to preach. And it's a harder word to believe and live, personally speaking. But Jesus isn't interested about your take on the matter. You are called to think God's thoughts after him. And he's given you his word to tell you exactly what he thinks about life in this world as he's designed it to be. It's going to cost you your opinions. You must part with your spiritual autonomy and resistance to authority. Listen, there's a reason why it's called a kingdom and that Jesus is called a king. This is not a democracy. Jesus isn't looking for a two-thirds vote. He's not looking for a majority. He's the king. You can't impeach him. He's not going to resign. He's the king. And guess what? You are and I am. We're subjects. The king calls the shots. He doesn't need you to advise him. It's going to cost you your resistance to authority. You know, church fathers of old, they looked at the second parable about the clash of the two kings, and they read in that that the kingdom of God was advancing, and you don't have enough soldiers to go to war with God. So you should tender your treaty for peace. And they said that the good news was that God was glad to accept it. In fact, he was offering the terms of peace to you. James Weldon Johnson said, your arms are too short to box with God. You must part with a my will be done way of life. I do what I want to do, how I want to do it, and I fudge it whenever God's will cuts across the grain of what I want to do or how I'd like to deal with issues, whether that has to do with sexuality, money, politics, your communication with other people. Well, they just deserved it. I had to light them up. No, that's a my will be done way of doing conflict. That's a my way, my will be done way of, of dealing with it. Now, now, I want you to know something. Jesus ain't afraid of stepping on nobody's toes. And to be a faithful herald on behalf of Jesus, I must not fear stepping on toes either. If your views do not align with God's views and you are unwilling to part with them, Jesus is saying, you cannot be my disciple. If you're unwilling to submit yourself to the way that God sees it, the way he's communicated it in his word. Listen, it's going to cost you. I want you to hear me on this one. Hear me good. It's going to cost you your individualism and disdain for the church of God, the bride of Christ, his community. I know it's in fashion for people to bang on the church, 
all those hypocrites. Yeah, and we distance ourselves from people. But I'm going to tell you something. You cannot come to me and say, I love you, but I hate your wife, and think that I'm going to be okay with that. You cannot do that. If you tell me you love me and you hate Vanessa, you and I got beef. We got beef. You cannot bang on and rail against the church and think that maintaining that disposition of heart always and ever is the way to honor and follow Jesus. I like the way that church fathers of old have put it when they come to talking about the church. Some have said, because the church is called the bride of Christ, and we extrapolate from that, that, that feminine personal pronoun, they said, she's unfaithful, but she's my mother. They were, they were communicating that, yes, the church does things that are wrong and we should name the wrong. But as an entity, as the church itself, as the bride of Christ, we must love the church. We must love the church. Not just individuals in the church, but the church. It's the bride of Christ. To love him is to love his wife. Jesus describes it as carrying a cross. At the very least, following him is going to cost you your reputation and fitting into the culture. It's going to cost you that. It's definitely going to cost you your people-pleasing and being liked by everybody. You need to be liked by everyone in the culture. You find yourself in a reactionary stance every time something comes up on social media. you got to hurry up and jump and say something so that make sure you don't have anybody being mad at you at any time. It's going to cost you that dancing when the culture says dance. It's going to cost you that. It's going to cost you that need to be liked by everybody. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your sense of entitlement, your independence, and your need to control things. It's going to cost you. It will cost you everything in making Jesus your greatest love. And that's what Jesus is saying. And that's the sober word. So we're left with a question, how in the world do you do this? Why in the world would I want to do this? Because the benefits outweigh the costs. And God does not leave you without the motivation for being able to live up into this. And that brings us to our second point. God's greatest love. In the broader context of this passage, y'all, the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus has initiated his final journey to Jerusalem, where he's going to do the greatest act of love that one could ever conceive of. He is in the process of the journey when he issues these words to the crowd. And it is in this context that he issues the call to discipleship, this is the context in which he lays out the cost of the kingdom on his way to show us this great love. 
If we're wondering how Jesus could call for such unqualified love, how he could be so bold as to say that you must love me far and away above anyone or anything else in the world, we have our answer in the context. The only way that anybody in their right mind could call for such comprehensive love and commitment is if they knew that they were going to offer far more back. The only person who could call for such comprehensive commitment is the one who will show you that commitment that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. Jesus didn't treat you or your rescue as a casual or ordinary thing. Jesus is no halfway savior. He's no part-time lover. That's not who he is. He parted with his pride of place and glory. And he parted with his power for your redemption, taking on the form of weakness out of love for you and the Father's glory. He submitted his own life to the word of God, and if he had not, our redemption would be eternally lost. If he had fudged it one time, if one time he said, my will be done, you and I would be lost. There would be no hope, no salvation, no good news. But he stuck to the Father's plan. He lived a your will be done way of life at the crucial moment where our future hung in the balance, in the garden, facing the utmost in temptation, knowing that the love he had experienced from eternity was about to be withdrawn and that infinite wrath was about to be poured out on him. And he said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus carried the cross surrendered his reputation. (laughs) He surrendered fitting into the culture and it cost him everything to do the work of rescue for you and me. But look, this shows us that God's greatest love, how does God command and demand your greatest love? He shows you that his greatest love is to bring many sons and daughters to glory and to glorify himself in that great act of love in renewing the world. That's his greatest love. Listen, to put it another way, he, the son of God calls us to follow, the one who calls us to follow loves us. The God who calls you to love him is the God who loves you. It's no ordinary love either. His love made him willing to become incarnate, to to assume the curse, to bear our sins, to suffer our shame and indignity, to die on the cross for our sins, to be buried, to raise up for our justification, to ascend and to pierce through the veil of glory and to sit at the Father's right hand to make intercession for us and to plead our case. That's what his love led him to do. Look, Jesus will never be precious to you until you see how precious you are to him. Do you see that? You will not hold Jesus in your heart until you know that he holds you in his heart. You will not value Jesus until you see how Jesus values you. You will not fix your mind on him until you see how his mind has been fixed on you. It is this God who calls for your love, your obedience, your service, your treasure, your very life. And does not such a God, such a Savior, such a King deserve it? Yes, he does. You will not adopt a new way of life until you see the beauty of what it means to be adopted. Do you see this? Do you see it? 
to be his beloved children, to have his, the full force of his affection directed at you, to know that you are loved with the same strength and the same power and the same commitment that the father loves the son because you're in union with him. That is a profound encouragement to rise up and follow. What more could God do for you than he has done? What more could he offer to you? The answer is nothing. What does he deserve from you? What can he call from you? The answer is everything. Count the cost this morning, y'all. Count the cost. Ask two things. This is what's involved in determining the call to discipleship. Can you live with him? Can you live with him in love? Can you live with him in worship and adoration? Not as a pain in the neck, not as your tag along. Not as like, you know, your little brother that you have to bring along. Yeah, it's my little brother. That's not, Jesus isn't interested in being a part of your life. He wants to be your life. Can you live with him? And here's the second question. Can you live without him? Can you really live without him? That's the question. These are the two questions that everyone must ask if they're going to be serious about considering the call to discipleship. This is the cost of the kingdom. May we find ourselves being willing to embrace the possible side effects because we know that the benefits far outweigh. Amen?